everybody. Welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Today I've got Greg and Aaron here with me, Jeff. Today we've got a bit of a Thanksgiving potluck with a number of topics we're going to be talking about. And we're going to start off talking about Greg's Santa Cruz Bronson follow-up. For those of you who may recall, Greg demoed the new Santa Cruz Bronson out at Outer Bike just a month ago. And the review was a little bit controversial, so Greg got a chance to go back and do a follow-up review in California with Santa Cruz. So my question for you, Greg, to start it off is, was that an awkward conversation that you had with Santa Cruz? Yeah, it could have been awkward, but rather it was just a really great time of sort of like connecting with Santa Cruz, uh, learning their perspective and why they sort of built the bike the way they did, and just some great time shredding single track. I think it was just super fun to be able to bond over some mountain biking. Ended up being a really good time. So you went to Santa Cruz, you met with the folks there and talked about the Bronson and some of the other bikes. So what what was your biggest takeaway from the meetings with the guys there? Um, for all of my takeaways and sort of like the back and forth from the original review to the second review I did and some interviews I did with Santa Cruz, um, be sure to read uh, my detailed follow-up review and I kind of delve into everything there. But in a general sense, my biggest takeaway was uh, in regards to the bike, you just can't beat dialing in a bike for your personal anatomy, your local terrain, and what you want out of the bike and how you ride it. So it just sort of the personal approach to that whole thing. So, you know, for one, bike fitting is huge. I recommend a pro bike fit for anybody and everybody who rides a bike at least semi-regularly. That's step one. Um, dialing in your bikes for your wants and needs and local terrain, again, is sort of step two. And the Brownson rode great on Santa Cruz's local terrain. And it sounds like a lot of people enjoy the Brownson. But personally, the Brownson's not my cup of tea. You know, if I was to buy a Santa Cruz bike, I would go either up to the Nomad or down to the 5010. But that doesn't mean that everybody would. Perhaps the Brownson would work really great for you. You know, I would pick a different bike out of Santa Cruz's line, depending on what I want to do with it. You know, if I want to do my normal sort of big mountain riding here in Colorado and I'm going to be doing like, you know, focusing on descending really fast and doing some enduro racing, the Nomad, no question. If I'm going like long distance and I'm grinding it out, the 5010, no question. I don't think you can get a bike that do, does both of those things really well. So yeah, when try to like split the difference. Well, you bring up some interesting points in your follow-up review about not just you know, finding a bike that fits you in terms of your body type and that sort of thing and riding style, which I think most people can appreciate. But it also sounds like you're saying that there are certain bikes that are better suited to certain types of terrain. For example, you said that the Bronson performs really well in Santa Cruz and in, you know, sort of that California coastal terrain, but not necessarily in, you know, the deserts of Moab. And would you say, bikes are becoming ultra specialized and that, you know, there's really like a Goldilocks bike for everyone, but that finding it is going to be a real challenge going forward. Um, you know, people definitely disagree with me about, you know, the Bronson being more suited to one thing and then another, you know, but, um, at the end of the day, I think we need to come back to sort of Chris Daniels article uh, about, you know, that there's never going to be a do it all bike. It's like whatever you Put into a mountain bike, you're making some sort of compromise. So the Bronson, even the previous rendition of the Bronson had a, a pretty, felt like it had a pretty low bottom bracket. It rides like a very low bike, 
which makes for amazing cornering skills. I mean, it just rails those corners. And it was slacked out and long, and it rides super steep terrain really well, but super, you know, like Moabby terrain, I wasn't as stoked on it. Um, it's not to say it's a bad bike, but you're always going to make a compromise. So I just think people need to realize that, you know? Yeah, I, uh, I rode the Santa Cruz 5010 this summer out in Oak Ridge, and while I had a really great time on that bike, I did smack the pedals really often, which was kind of odd because there's not that much technical stuff out in uh in oak ridge at least on the the alpine trail that i rode you know as much fun as i had on the bike i i don't know if it'd be the best bike for me personally you know kind of like you were saying it's like what where do you ride how do you ride what do you want out of the bike you know being on the east coast where there's you know no shortage of roots and rocks i yeah i can just imagine smacking pedals all day long and having more of a frustrating ride at least on the the climbing side of things yeah well the the really good thing though i guess is that these days there are just so many mountain bikes out there and there's going to be one that's perfect for everyone i mean i I bet we could probably if we sat down and just tried to name mountain bike brands that we could think of we could probably get to close to 100 so it's cool that you can find a bike that's going to fit your riding style and also your terrain i have one more question for you greg (laughs) Did you happen to see any tall boy LT uh, prototypes laying around there? They kept the proto stuff uh, pretty well under wraps, so I didn't get to didn't get to really delve into that, unfortunately. <laughs> but there's a few rooms I didn't get to go into. They're like, oh, there's a bunch of stuff out there you can't see yet. So interested to see what Santa Cruz is coming down the pipe because I'm sure it'll be interesting. Yeah, actually, the uh, the Tallboy LT was really the bike I thought they were going to release next and instead of updating the Bronson. So that's kind of the one I'm most excited for to see what they do with because that was kind of one of the first long travel 29ers, and by all accounts, it's a badass bike. So to see that freshened up would be cool. Yeah, I'm a self-proclaimed 29er fan, so I could totally get behind that. Right on. So last week... We had an article from Michael Paul about staying strong for mountain biking as we grow older. And that article generated a lot of interest on the website and in the Facebook comments. And so I wanted to take a couple minutes to talk about some of the people that we know that are older riders and what we've learned from them uh, about mountain biking into old age. So do you guys, either you guys ride with anyone who's like 50, 60 plus? Uh, I actually do quite regularly i have a a couple friends that are in their late 50s early 60s you know one one in particular my buddy willie he's he's just a monster he rides anywhere from 10 to 12,000 miles a year you know a lot of that is on the road obviously but he does a ton of mountain biking you know i'd probably say 40 percent of his riding is off-road um but you know the guy gets in during the summer. He rides two centuries a week. He rides one on Wednesday afternoon and evening, and then he gets up at like four thirty in the morning on Saturday and rides a hundred to a hundred and twenty miles on the road. Um, Those old guys love getting up early. Oh man, they do. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's uh, not super fast. I mean, he's not slow by any means. But he, the guy can just ride all day long. You know, I mean, I'm I'm probably lucky to get in one or two centuries a year. You know, so he's doing that every single week. 
He's one of the guys I ride with regularly that just really just blows me away. And another another buddy of mine, Jeff, you know, he's in his 60s. He's semi-retired and he spends part of his time in his house in Pisgah. And so he's kind of almost like a Pisgah local at this point. And I've ridden with him up there and he's got a, he's actually rides a Nomad. And he can clean technical sections that had, you know, some of us trying multiple times. I had some of us just giving up and walking him. You know, he was picking his way through him with no problem. So it's really cool to see older riders still out there riding, you know, definitely gives me gives me hope for the long term. Yeah, so I've ridden with quite a few guys that are significantly older than me and I've been blown away by those guys on all fronts. You know, both speed, endurance, bike handling and even massive like downhill skills. Uh one guy in particular that I'd like to highlight is Michael Woodruff who I talked about in my article day about Grand Targi. And I had the opportunity to ride with him up at Targi. And uh, I don't know how old Michael is. I do know he's got a massive gray beard and he's older than my dad. Potentially a lot older. I don't know. This guy. But he just absolutely shreds. So we were shredding downhill, you know. And I, I like to go fast downhill. But I don't, you know, like sending big gap jumps or dropping huge cliffs that are like taller than I am. So I opted out of a few things to shoot some photos. But I mean, he is sending like these 10 plus foot drops, you know, no problem. And then we're riding up the lifts or just talking about riding in the area and different opportunities. And then he sort of lets drop. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm into bike packing too. I did such and such race here locally. That's like a 500 mile race. And he completed it in less than five days, averaging over 100 miles a day on a fully loaded bike packing rig. And I'm just like, this guy is better than me at everything. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just amazing. And uh, he commutes to work like up the mountain to Targi, which is like an eight mile climb from town. It's it's crazy. And then he'll like take like the scenic route back, like climb from the resort, drop down Mill Creek on single track, and like ride back into town. It's pretty awesome. He does it like every day. My takeaway from that and other people I've ridden with like that, it's just. There's no excuses, really. You know, I'm kind of sick of people saying that they're too old and that's why they can't do, you know, A, B, and C. I'm like, Michael is better at me than a- absolutely everything, you know. And it's just like, you know, I'm not saying there aren't perhaps some limitations that come with age and an accumulation of injuries and stuff over time. I think so often it just boils down to how bad you want it. You know, yeah. do you really want to? knock out a 500 mile bike packing race if you want to you can do it you just have to want it bad enough so i don't know for me that stuff like this and riding with people like this is super inspiring it just invalidates like the crappy e-bike arguments that say oh when you're old enough you're going to need a motor to get up into the mountains to enjoy the mountains i just think that's bs and i think there's plenty of other people out there that prove it's bs right well i mean to be fair for a lot of people, it, it comes down to injuries and things. And one of the guys that I ride with, Paul, he recently had his hip replaced. Um, and he was back on the bike in six weeks riding mountain bike trails again, which is pretty crazy, pretty pretty risky and yeah. not, not necessarily a great idea. But um, one of the things that, that has stuck with me that Paul has said is that his secret has been just never getting off the bike. I mean, I think a lot of people – you know, they're active in their youth and then they take some time off while they're busy with work or family or whatever. And then 
they try to jump back on the bike and they end up injuring themselves or realize they just completely lost that fitness and and kind of what you were saying greg they lost that desire for me the the takeaway from paul is that it's something that you got to keep doing constantly in order to keep it going and and you just keep doing it until you can't do it anymore and for a lot of people unfortunately it is injuries that knock them off the bike but age i agree age is not an excuse just because of you know the number on your driver's license that doesn't mean you can't do it anymore Another thing that that I've noticed is a lot of older riders tend to focus on LSD, which is long, slow distance riding. You know, Aaron mentioned his buddy that that rides, you know, 100 miles every weekend. And I think a lot of older riders focus on that. But at the same time, doing sort of high intensity workouts can do a lot for you as well into old age. I mean, I found that I'm not I'm not old by any means, but I found that for myself, I can continue to do sort of short, intense workouts where I'll run, you know, four miles at seven minute miles. And I'll do that like once a week. I mean, this is this is basically what I do due to time constraints more than anything, man, I would love to go out and just spend four hours on the bike and ride around. But I I honestly don't have time. And so when I do get a workout in, it's going to be short, but it's going to be intense. And Luckily, I've found as I age that I'm getting, I'm still getting faster. I'm just not putting in the time that necessarily I used to, or that maybe older people are. Right. Yeah. You bring up a good point about, you know, the different ways you can ride and different ways you can train, but it's also what, what are people's goals for riding? You know, I know I've, I've talked to my buddy Willie about that, you know, the guy that rides 10, 12,000 miles a year. But his goal isn't to get faster. He just likes to be out there riding. So, you know, well, yeah, he could, you know, pound out a bunch of intervals and be totally waxed after an hour. That's not what he wants to do. That's not why he rides. He he enjoys being outside. So he would rather ride for six or eight hours at a much slower pace just because, you know, that's what, that's what he cares about. He cares about the time on the bike and the time being outside and not necessarily – improving his time over a course or better race results or whatever. So it, it definitely depends on, like you said, I mean, it can be a time constraint thing, but it also can be your own personal goals in riding. Yeah, definitely. And Greg, you know, you mentioned the e-bike argument, and I saw this week that Trek is adding e-bike, an e-bike option to their Trek travel tours. So, you know, these are the ones that <laughs> – that the people, I mean, I imagine it's a lot of like middle-aged retiree people with a lot of money that are taking these trips. And it's like a cycling trip of a lifetime. You get to go ride for a week in Italy or something. But, you know, they're starting to offer this e-bike option for people. And to their credit, you know, they argue that part of it is, say, your partner isn't as strong a rider as you are and you, you want to bring them along on the trip, then, you know, they have that option. But yeah, I do find it interesting that people are, I don't know, maybe kind of cheating. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say because I'm not, I'm not that age yet. And, you know, hopefully I'll keep riding and, and won't get to that point. But there are plenty of examples of people on both sides for sure. So now it's time for a little segment we call What's Grinding Our Gears and Stoking Our Spokes. Who wants to start it off? I'll start it off. So um, something that's grinding my gears, something I know that 
A lot of us complain about it in our reviews on our site and on other sites, and uh, I kind of still can't believe it's still a big issue as it is, but companies still specking narrow-ass bars and long-ass stems on bikes that <laughs> don't need them, you know? Um, I really think, you know, obviously, as, as uh, you know, Greg kind of found out with the Santa Cruz, you can't go too far in the, in the wide direction, but um, I don't... I think any everybody can ride a bar that's wider than 720. You know, almost everybody should be able to ride a 740 or 750 millimeter bar, you know, without it negatively impacting the handling. And uh, you know, one of the particular bikes we have in for testing right now is a 27.5 plus, and it's got a 720 bar on it, which you know that's kind of wide-ish I guess or maybe it would have been a few years ago but you really notice it when you're leaning that bike over you know you have a three inch tire up front that is a lot of meat to get turned and it, it it really feels like you're fighting the front end of that bike and I think that's that's just some you know you spec a 750 or 760 bar on that and it, it, it makes it a, a much easier fight for the rider so that's you know, I know, like I said, it's something that a lot of reviews touch on, on single tracks and on other sites, but all you uh, product managers out there, stop specking narrow-ass bars. Right, and why why not? I mean, people can cut down their bars, so unless it's, unless it's like a cost-saving thing, like <laughs> just go ahead and put really wide bars on and let people figure it out when they get the bike. Exactly. What about you, Greg? What's getting you stoked this week? This week, um, I'm just really stoked on all the new cold weather gear that's available out there. Um, I got a pair of Wolf Hammer boots in from 45 North to review. And man, these things have already changed the way like I think about riding in the snow. You know, I used to just use standard shoes with as few vents as possible and like shoe covers, which just doesn't work. But man, I mean, we are seeing like so much great gear coming out that your weather is becoming less and less of like a barrier to riding your bicycle. I mean, to the point where it really shouldn't be anymore. So I'm pretty stoked on that. Also stoked on just more bike packing frame bags. I tried out a couple new types of bags that I'd never used before just this past week. And it was pretty awesome. I was like, I had seen these on people's bikes. I was like, yeah, I um, don't think that specific bag would work for my uses. But then I was like, this is rad. I mean, these people are geniuses. So I'm just really stoked on so many new ways to haul your gear that doesn't include stuffing it into one big bag on your back. I'm with you on that. I've definitely been uh, enjoying the bags that I got from Bike Bag Dude, even just for cruising around town. You know, it's nice to throw the U-lock and the cable in the frame bag and, you know, ride to the bar and go have a beer and not worry about having to carry a backpack and, you know, deal with that sweaty back once I get there. Do you have some of those tiny luggage locks for your bike packing bags so nobody <laughs> steals your stuff out of the bag? I don't know. <laughs> so I do have something uh, that's grinding my gears right now. And we've published a few articles this week about um, buying bikes online. And I'm all for supporting your local bike shop. All this talk of supporting your local bike shop through bike purchases is just really sort of grinding my gears. I don't know if it's just me, but all of the bikes that are on my want list that I'm like, this is a bike that truly excels and I could ride this like long term. 
they aren't available at my local shops. I don't know if it's just because my local shops don't carry the right brands or maybe my tastes are just super specific. But I'm, I wouldn't be willing to accept compromises in the bike I want to buy just to support my local shop. This is sort of a, also relates to a question that was generally posted on our Facebook page. A guy was wondering if he should get this one bike that has just the dialed components they wants and is cheaper than this comparable bike from his friend's shop, but he'd have to drive to a different shop to buy it, or if he should just compromise, spend more money, and support his friend. And maybe it's just me, but if you're spending $5,000 plus, like, I'm not going to go buy something that I don't want to buy, you know? <laughs> I don't know what the, why the situation is that I'm like – you know, feeling this way. I don't know if I have just super specialized tastes, like in the general sense, not the brand, but specialized <laughs> tastes in the type of bike I want to ride that most shops won't put those on the floor. It just seems like most of the time I see these really vanilla models on the showroom floor and I'm just like, I wouldn't ride that bike. That does nothing for me. You know, granted, I could probably drive somewhere to a different dealer and maybe a big enough shop in a different town and find the specific bike I'm looking for. But even if you did that, I mean, that you're supporting a shop but not your local shop. So that seems counterproductive as well. Personally, I would never want to compromise the bike I want to buy just to buy one locally, like unless they can provide me the exact bike setup I want. Um, but I would do promote like supporting your local bike shop by paying for bike repair service, bike fitting service, buying the items they do have in stock that I want to purchase, um, and not showrooming rooming the shop by trying products there and buying them somewhere else. But on the same time, I don't think people should compromise if the shop isn't providing what they want. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's actually something we we kind of brought up when with our uh, one of our last podcasts with Chris Tavell, who owns Loose Nuts Cycles here in Atlanta. You know, like... People shouldn't shouldn't support their local shop just out of charity, you know. Like I like like you said, if they don't have what you want and you're ready to drop five grand on a bike, I mean, are you really gonna buy a bike that you're not super stoked on just to support your local shop? That doesn't that doesn't make sense, you know. There's other ways to support your shop, like you said, through through buying accessories and apparel and all other kind of gear and service as well, you know. So. You know, one of one of the issues with that is, you know, the kind of bike that you know maybe you or I would be looking at is is very specific, and we have very uh, very specific tastes and what we want out of components, and you know maybe that you know the the shop isn't going to have that bike in stock because it is an expensive bike, and if they're worried they're not going to be able to sell it, they're going to be stuck with a really expensive bike that you know then they'll have to discount at the end of the year. I mean, like, if you're in the market for a, a Subaru, but there's no Subaru dealership for you, you're not going to go and buy a Ford. You know, it just doesn't, <laughs> just because, well, you know. You know, I, and I agree, but I feel like this is what a lot of people are saying is you oh, should yeah, just totally. buy whatever is there, you know. And like, I think they're bike shop owners. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for instance, like, let's say you want to buy a fat bike, you know, and your local bike shop is a Trek dealer. Most people are just going to buy the Farley, you know. Um but if you take the time to ride like a ton of different fat bikes, maybe it turns out the Farley isn't the best one and you want like a Kona, but there's no Kona around you. Like mm -hmm. most people are still going to just buy the Farley, you know? But 
if I'm paying like that money out of pocket, like I want to get the very best fat bike I can purchase for me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and maybe the problem isn't the local bike shop. It's the brands, right? For having these agreements that, you know, essentially isolate the local bike shops. I mean, I hit on it in my article, one of my articles earlier this week that, in a lot of ways, the brands are limiting the power of the local bike shop. I mean, that's part of their goal. You know, they, they don't want to admit that. But, you know, for them, they don't want to see, for example, you know, a performance bike megastore selling Trek. Because tr- that way, performance can say, hey, Trek, we need you to lower your prices. And Trek, you know, we want you to do this kind of bike. Whereas by having a bunch of small local dealers, you're able to have a lot of power. None of them can really tell the brand what to do. And so in this case too, it's the brand saying, look, you know, we're not going to, we don't even want people to bike shops in the same town to sell our bikes because then they're going to start competing on price and, you know, it's going to hurt our brand. But imagine, I mean, what if, what if any bike shop could sell any bike and you could walk in and you could, you know, Greg, you have, you want the Ibis Mojo HD three and you want it in blue imagine if you could just go to your shop, the shop, the guys that you trust and that you enjoy doing business with and you, that you want to support and they could get that bike for you. You know, I have a feeling you would order it from them, but because these companies have made it so complicated, you know, you are forced to go online or to find the bike by other means. And it, it is really tough. Like it's not really fair to consumers, honestly, or the shops. So, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm laying the blame on the brands, but maybe that's not fair. Damn the man. <laughs> Anything grinding your gears or stoking your spokes, Jeff? I'm really stoked on the power tap. I think I mentioned it before that I had it in for review, but this week I've finally had a chance to start testing it and playing around with it. And I just had no idea that this amount of ride data was available through any tool, really. But the power tap... For those who don't know, it's like a power meter that's built into the hub, the rear hub on your bike. And there's a head unit that PowerTap makes that has GPS and obviously has your power readout and a bunch of other stuff. And I've been doing some tests of the PowerTap itself, but also trying to test some like mountain biking myths, which is going to be a lot of fun once we publish those articles. But Um, just the granularity of the data. I mean, you can see your power second by second on the bike and you can see, you know, position down to the hundredth of a kilometer and and all kinds of stuff. So it's really cool to be able to see that data and geek out about it. Basically, Jeff's turning into a triathlete slowly. (laughs) Well, yeah, let's talk of running, man. I know, right? (laughs) Well, right. What's funny is, I mean, I'm stoked about the data, but not for the reason, the normal reasons. Like I don't, I still don't know how I would use that in my training or anything like that, but it's fun to, to test some of these myths and also, yeah, just to see, I don't know, I guess I just like data, like whether I use it or not, it's kind of cool to have. Well, on that, uh, the, the training note, that's something that's, uh, Stoking my spokes. I've uh, I've been talking to a coach, and I'm gonna gonna hopefully get get a training plan lined up for next year. And you know, I ride a lot, but you know, very little of my riding currently is structured. Hoping to get a plan in place and really see some improvements. There's a couple kind of key races that I want to do again next year. One of them being the the Transylvania Epic up in Pennsylvania. 
which I did last year, and then the off-road assault on Mount Mitchell in North Carolina. Those are kind of the two like really big events that I did last year and had a really good time doing and fairly happy with the results that I got last year, but I'd also, you know, want to want to improve on that in 2016. So stoked about getting a coach. Awesome. Goal setting for 2016. This is the time of year to be doing that. Well, thanks for joining us again for the Single Tracks podcast. Remember, if you're enjoying our podcast, please go onto iTunes and rate us up so other people can find the podcast as well. See you next time. Peace.